Blog Talk Radio.
Wanga mugiaye Mulumo waji tanda Kwa kwa waka yeme Mwena menshi Another edition uh, of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Apayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Sunday, uh, October the 24th, uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We would like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to another edition uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special edition of our program. And later on, uh, we'll be featuring, as usual, our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the need uh, for the African Continental Free Trade Area uh, Regional Economic Commissions to make uh, this uh, continental uh, enterprise a reality. Also, uh, the Ethiopian government is accusing the Western media of spreading misinformation on the situation inside the Horn of Africa state. Also, a delegation uh, from the United Nations is visiting the West African state of Mali to assess the security situation uh, inside the country. And the military junta uh, in Guinea has appointed three new members to its cabinet. 
In the second hour, we listened to a briefing uh, by the World Health Organization Director General Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus. Uh, he will be speaking and along with his colleagues on the status of the COVID-19 pandemic in Africa as well as internationally. Finally, we review uh, some of the important issues impacting the African continent and the world. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So please uh, stay tuned, and uh, we'll take a musical interlude. We'll be back with more of our program for uh, this week. Thank you. 
Mama, my pastor, don't you mama, my mother, don't you mama, my mother, 
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and uh, today is Sunday, October 24th, uh, 2021, and uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. Uh, We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, to our program here uh, at uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Right now, we're going to move into our Pan-African Newswatch segment. Our lead story deals uh, with uh, the African continental free trade area. And uh, according uh, to Mr. J. Wendell Addy, the chairperson of the African Private Sector Summit, the African continental free trade area will only succeed if the regional economic commissions and uh, the African uh, continental free trade area protocols are addressed. Uh, Mr. Addy said that uh, it was important uh, that the African uh, uh, 
Continental Free Trade Area uh, Secretariat successfully implemented these protocols uh, signed uh, by the heads of states at the regional and continental levels. Uh, Mr. Addy uh, made these remarks at a press conference to uh, end uh, the four-day African Private Sector Summit that was held in the capital of the West African state of Ghana and Accra. The summit was on the theme of Awakening Africa's Sleeping Giants in uh, implementation of the regional uh, structures of uh, the African continental free trade area, uh, leveraging strategic opportunities uh, for Africa's turnaround. The conference uh, was to provide a high-level platform for industry giants, policymakers, the public sector, entrepreneurs, and CEOs across the continent of Africa to deliberate on topical issues. Uh, The chairperson said if the continent truly wanted uh, the APTA to succeed, uh, then the business community must have an engaging environment. Quote, they should engage in areas like infrastructural development on the continent and the issue of common currency, unquote. Uh, Mr. Addy explained uh, that the issue of common currency should now move from uh, being a political game to a continental game, uh, where the game must be won uh, by the continent. Uh, He said, quote, we cannot continue to function the way we have done over the years and expect a different result, unquote. He said the governments must be decisive in concluding uh, an understanding of the regional currencies and common currencies. Mr. Clement Osai Amiako, uh, the president of Ghana's National Chamber of Commerce and Industry, said not until Africans come together, quote, we cannot get to the destination of transforming trade facilitation on the continent, unquote. He said there were a lot of resources available uh, that must be tapped uh, to move ahead for the transformation of the continent. The president said that the African continental free trade area would bring about industrialization and raw materials needed to drive uh, that and urge the continent uh, to identify some key raw materials produced within. He said every country on the continent uh, would have to identify its contributions to the realization of the African continental free trade area objectives. Areas considered for deliberations include infrastructural development and transportation, he added. Mr. Osei Amarco uh, said after the summit, there would be the establishment of a monitoring team to monitor key issues identified to ensure that those actionable items were achieved. He said the chamber was committed to favorable collaboration with organizations interested in the fortunes of uh, the continent. In other news, uh, despite the concrete proofs that show the recent airstrikes have been taken seriously targeting the TPLF military armaments by the Ethiopian Air Forces, CNN, the New York Times, and the Associated Press have been reporting stories in favor of the TPLF rebels. That's according to CBS journalist Hermela Aragawi. She pointed out in her three-minute-long YouTube post this week's airstrikes by Ethiopian government forces have not targeted civilians at all. Hermela, however, said the TPLF mouthpieces and activists saying the airstrikes targeting the civilians. She further said, quote, CNN, New York Times, and Associated Press have been reporting the same stories of the rebel groups ignoring facts because they have proven to be mouthpieces for the rebel groups. 
It seems their aim is to support the rebel group in overthrowing the Ethiopian government. It is also important to know about some UN officials uh, that they are proven to be a mixed bag in terms of credibility. There's a good one, and there are those uh, who have proven uh, to be rebel allies on how to redirect humanitarian aid to war, she noted. A war struggled uh, by the TPLF rebels. Well, many of us uh, have been, uh, while many of us have been calling for peace when the federal government declared a unilateral ceasefire back in June. But the rebels uh, kept fighting, uh, killing thousands of neighboring states in neighboring states uh, since July, according uh, to the BBC report. Hermela said that, quote, Mekele is Ethiopia's Tigray state capital city. If the Ethiopian Air Force targeting the civilians, thousands will be killed. It is clear uh, by the numbers given, even by the rebel TV outlets themselves, that the Ethiopian government is not targeting the civilians. Many international outlets, particularly CNN, the New York Times, and the Associated Press, are getting it wrong when it comes to their reporting on Ethiopia. They seem to favor armed rebels who are working to overthrow the popular Ethiopian government. Uh, it has been learned. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In other news, uh, the United Nations Security Council delegates, led by the ambassadors from the United States, France, and Niger, arrived in Bamako, Mali, for two days of talks to push the military-led interim government for a return to democracy after two coups over the last nine months. Now, the delegation adds uh, to international pressure on coup leaders to abide by a February 27th deadline set by the Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, for a presidential election, a deadline that the regime is openly suggesting might be missed. Kenya's ambassador to the UN, uh, Martin Kimani, said it would be ideal for them to have a better understanding of the situation in Mali in order to know how best to help. We want to understand the situation in Mali, to feed our discussion in New York. As a fellow African country, the situation in Mali and the Sahel is very dear uh, to Kenya. Malian uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation, Abdullahi Jok, welcomed the delegation, adding that the meeting would help to give a progress report by the government. Uh, We welcome this mission with open arms. We found this an opportunity to present the reality of the situation in Mali and also to present the progress that is being made by the transitional government, but also to present our vision of what must be done to complete this transition through the organization of transparent and credible elections. In a statement released on Friday, Human Rights Watch had urged the United Nations mission to use this as an opportunity to encourage Malian authorities to, quote, investigate a spate of alleged summary executions, enforced disappearances, and detentions by government uh, security forces. It is alleged that since September, at least 14 men last seen in the custody of the security forces had disappeared or remained in incommunicado detention. The bodies of three men allegedly executed after their arrest by soldiers earlier this month were found nearby an army camp. Human Rights Watch Sahel Director Karim Dufka is reported to have said 
Mali's transitional government shouldn't be standing back while its soldiers are linked to a wave of abuses. The army earlier uh, this month said it had investigated images published online that purported to show torture and the bodies of victims and that those involved had been sanctioned and placed at the disposal of the gendarmerie. The poor and landlocked uh, nation uh, that is home to at least 20 ethnic groups has been racked uh, by jihadists and intercommunal violence as well as coups uh, in August of 2020 and May of 2021. Uh, Military intervention by France and the United Nations has failed to quell an Islamic insurgency that has swept into central Mali and spilled over into neighboring Burkina Faso and Niger, leaving thousands dead and forcing hundreds of thousands uh, from their homes. And finally, in neighboring Guinea, Conakry, coup leaders in Guinea have named their first lineup of government ministers, including a former general and three other figures who held posts under ousted President Alpha Conde. Pushists uh, have repeatedly tried to reassure investors, donors, and regional powers, saying last month overthrow of Conde was a one-off action to get rid of what is called a corrupt elite and that it has no plans to stay in office. Former Army officer Abu Bakr Siddiqui Kamara, a close associate of coup leaders, and interim president Mamadi Doumbouya, was named transitional minister of defense. A junta spokesperson said on state TV late on Thursday, Kamara is best known for having been a key member of the junta that seized control of Guinea from 2008 to 2010 after the death of then-President Lasana Kanti. That junta drew international condemnation after government troops killed more than 150 pro-democracy demonstrators at a stadium in 2009. A United Nations-led investigation called the massacre a crime against humanity, but no one was ever charged. Kamara, known by his nickname Idi Amin, after the infamous Ugandan leader, later served as chief of staff in Conde's defense ministry, after that as an ambassador to Cuba. Bashir Giallo, a former defense attaché based in Algeria, was named security minister. And Lahupu Lama, a former foreign trade director, was named environment minister. Abdul Rahmani Sikh Kamara was named secretary general of the government. He had previously served as an advisor to the position. A special forces unit overthrew Kandi on September the 5th in a move widely condemned by the African Union and uh, by the Economic Community of West African States, which imposed sanctions. It was the fourth coup in West and Central Africa since last year, following two in Mali and one in Chad. Kandi had angered his opponents by changing the Constitution to allow himself to stand for a third term. Dumbuya uh, was named interim president on October 1st and appointed civilian prime ministers a week later. Uh, he was promised to hold free and fair elections without giving a date and has barred junta members from standing in a future vote. Numboya uh, was expected to place his security sector allies in key defense positions, said Eric Humphrey Smith, an analyst at the British-based risk consultancy Burris Maplecroft. But the other appointments, he said, are more about stalling for time. The junta is towing a fine line to keep political and business stakeholders happy, he said. 
the latest string of nomination means, uh, we will likely have to wait a while longer before we get names for the most coveted roles, such as the Mines Minister. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding uh, this segment uh, of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, this special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, just uh, go uh, to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-Journal. Programs can be shared with other potential listeners by merely copying and pasting the links and putting those links into emails and sending those emails out to other potential listeners. You can also copy and paste links on blogs and websites. Uh, the links can also be shared through social media networks, such as uh, Facebook and Twitter. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back, and uh, that was the voice of uh, Irma Thomas, legendary uh, Irma Thomas, uh, soul singer from New Orleans. Uh, the tune entitled "Time Is on My Side," and uh, we want to uh, bring you a briefing uh, from the World Health Organization uh, discussing the status of the COVID-19 pandemic and uh, other issues uh, impacting the public health of the international community. Of course, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is still a major, major threat uh, to public health, uh, not just in the United States. Hello, everybody. This is Margaret Harris in Geneva, welcoming you today, October 21, to our global COVID-19 press conference. Speaking today will be, as ever, Dr. Tedros Adnan Ghebreyesus, but as today's press conference has a special focus on health and care workers, as well as vaccine equity, Dr. Tedros will be joined by Mr. Gordon Brown, the WHO Ambassador for Global Health Financing, who will speak on vaccine equity, and Ms. Annette Kennedy, President of the International Council of Nurses, and Dr. Heidi Stenzmeyerin, President of the World Medical Association. And of course, we have, as usual, our full team of experts available to answer your COVID-19 questions during the question and answer session in the room here. We have Dr. Susanna Jakob, the WHO Deputy Director General, and we have Dr. Mike Ryan, who will be joining us soon, who's the Executive Director of World Health Emergencies, Dr. Bruce Aylwood, lead for the ACT Accelerator, Dr. Mariangela Shimao, our Assistant Director General, Access to Medicines and Other Health Products, and Mr. Jim Cam- Mr. James Campbell, Director for the Health Workforce Department. Um, and we will also have experts joining us online. We've got a very full and interesting program, and as ever, it will ha- we will have a team providing simultaneous translation in the six official UN languages, past Portuguese and Hindi, and so you may ask your questions in those languages. But now, as I said, we have a very full program. Without further ado, I will hand over to Dr. Tedros for his opening <coughs> remarks. Dr. Tedros, you have the floor. Thank you. Thank you, Margarita. Uh, Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I have often said that universal health coverage and health security are two sides of the same coin. Both depend on health systems that are resilient, efficient, and effective, and able to surge to respond to emergencies. Health systems like that are a vital first line of defense against outbreaks with epidemic and pandemic potential. But they're also essential for promoting health, preventive communicable and non-communicable diseases, and for reducing inequalities and inequities. This week, WHO published a new position, new position paper on building resilient health systems at the foundation of socioeconomic recovery and development. The position paper outlines seven policy recommendations with specific actions in each area. We urge all countries to implement these recommendations and reap their benefits. The backbone of every health system is its workforce. The people who deliver the services on which we rely at some point in our lives. 
The pandemic is a powerful demonstration of just how much we rely on health workers and how vulnerable we all are when the people who protect our health are themselves unprotected. A new WHO working paper estimates that 115,000 health workers may have died from COVID-19 between January 2020 and May this year. That's why it's essential that health workers are prioritized for vaccination. Data from 119 countries suggests that on average, two in five health and care workers globally are fully vaccinated. But of course, that average masks huge differences across regions and economic groupings. In Africa, less than one in 10 health workers have been fully vaccinated. Meanwhile, in most high-income countries, more than 80% of health workers are fully vaccinated. Today, WHO and several partner organizations have issued a statement calling for action to protect health and care workers around the world. First, we call on all countries to improve monitoring and reporting of infections and deaths among health and care workers. Second, we call on all countries to ensure all health and care workers are protected and supported with safe and healthy working conditions, regular salaries, pay equity, appropriate education, career opportunities, and social protection. Third, we call on all countries to ensure that all health and care workers in every country are prioritized for COVID-19 vaccines alongside other at-risk groups. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by two women who represent millions of health workers around the world. Dr. Annette Kennedy, President of the International Council of Nurses, and Dr. Heidi Stensmeyeren, the President of the World Medical Association, which represents the world's physicians. Thank you both for joining us. Annette, you have the floor, and then we will hear from Heidi. Annette? Dr. Kennedy, you have to unmute, please. You have to unmute, uh, Annette. I tried. Now, yes, that's good. We okay now? Yes, you're okay, please. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Tedros, and thank you, WHO, for giving me the opportunity to speak on behalf of the International Council of Nurses and on behalf of the 27 million nurses that I represent. I wish it was a better day today. I wish it was a day that we would celebrate that all healthcare workers had been vaccinated or that we had come to the end of COVID-19. But it is not that day. It is a day when we are hearing about 115,000 health workers who have died, many unneedlessly many we could have saved. And we know from ICN that that's an underestimate of the number that have actually died. We welcome the publication of the data, 
but we still grieve for those who have lost their lives. They have sacrificed their lives for other people that they have tried to save. Is it that healthcare workers' lives mean so little? Is that we cannot look after them and protect them? Is it that governments do not realize that they have a duty of care to their health workers, the most valuable resource? It's a shocking indictment of governments. It's a shocking indictment of their lack of duty of care to protect health care workers who have paid the ultimate sacrifice with their lives. Nurses, and I speak for nurses, although we're talking about all health care workers, went into this pandemic with six million nurses short. Not alone that, but every globally, the world was not prepared for the pandemic. We had weak health systems, it was unresilient health systems. And now we find that nurses have left orphan children and they have left many family members behind without compensation or without recompense because it's not looked as an occupational health injury. We have been calling for systematic standardized data collection for over a year and a half. We know from our associations, 135 associations throughout the world, that many nurses have become infected and many have died. We also know that nurses are burnt out. They have given their all for a year and a half or two years. They have worked long hours. They have worked without breaks. And they have been called to do a duty without protective equipment and without support. They are now burnt out. They are devastated. They are physically and mentally exhausted. And there is a prediction that 10% of them will leave within a very short time. Add to the 6 million nurses that we are short. Our estimates show that in the next 10 years or less, that we will lose 4.7 million nurses who are due to retire before 2020, mainly from the North America and from the European countries. That makes 10.7 million nurses. Add 10% more to that from the associations that we know that have said there is an intention of at least 10% who will leave the profession. That makes 13 million nurses. 13 million is 50% of the current workforce. No health system can survive without that many nurses. No health system can even function without 50% of its workforce. And we have seen that nurses are now going into different jobs already. The most educated of our profession are looking for agency work so that they can make two, three, and four times the salary would work a third of the time. That reduces the number in the workforce. So, what are governments going to do? What are they going to do to protect our workforce? If you were to see a plane crash every day for a week, an industry would call it down. In fact, the world would be investigating it. Yet there's no investigation to the 115,000 healthcare workers who have died. Are we not valuable? 
Are we not valuable to society? Are we not valuable because we put our lives at risk? There is something seriously wrong, and we all have responsibility. And what we will find is that the lack of sharing of vaccines across the world, because countries are only vaccinating their own, and they're going into booster doses, and they have vaccines that have not been used because they have a choice, and they have decided that through misinformation or disinformation, they're not using their vaccine. But they are left unused. And yet, we have other countries crying out for vaccines, particularly healthcare workers. And yet, those same countries would be aggressively recruiting very quickly nurses from those countries who cannot afford to lose their nurses or their healthcare workers. So I am sad. I am devastated. I am upset that so many people have lost their lives and that still our governments fail to protect the healthcare workers that they need most. So when is this going to stop? When are they going to stand up to the plate and take their responsibility seriously? They need to vaccinate all their healthcare workers, they need to invest, and they need to retain their health workforce. So I urge all governments, I urge all people, and I even urge the media to ensure that we make this clear, there is another crisis coming down the track, and that is a shortage of healthcare workers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Annette. And Heidi, over to you. Thank you, Dr. Tedros. And thank you for uh, the invitation to speak on behalf of the World Health Professional Alliance and World Health Medical Association. Thank you especially for the support uh, of the necessity to vaccinate health and care workers, individuals who are not only left alone in frontline, but not always heard. So with those words, um, we want to put forward that we thank the WHO for the initiative raised and uh, regret together with you that many member nations have not provided the data necessary to really document and understand the impact of the pandemic on health personnel and health care. Data, aggregated data, is a resource needed so that we can be more resilient now and in the future. We have learned to use data and we do have the possibility to collect data. Then it's time that it's being done. We have all experienced and witnessed the harm the pandemic has done not only to our patients, but also to us and our colleagues, many of which we have seen suffering or even dying. Some still left with long COVID problems. Left alone with shortages in material, often due to disrupted supply chains or unfortunately even hoarding. Left alone with staff shortages, unfortunately insufficient staffing already before the pandemic, but during the pandemic getting really worse. So both material shortages and staff shortages are partly consequences of economic planning and regimes, which have squeezed out the last reserves of healthcare systems. And as I mentioned before, we saw it even before the pandemic, and we also had knowledge about it. 
on-demand delivery uh, left the system with, uh, with lack of resource. We were not resilient enough when the pandemic hit us. Those uh, priorities, political priorities and choices um, turned out to be extremely costly, not only with a view to many lives lost, but also in the view of the economy and the health and welfare of our countries. Because healthcare is not a commodity to be acquired at the lowest price possible. Healthcare, including reserve capacities, are investments to the future. It's an insurance. It's the way we can be more resilient, just as you mentioned opening this meeting. So back to the working conditions. Working conditions, as, as pointed out earlier, have been inappropriate. Uh, during the pandemic, and uh, even the payment of uh, the uh, um, of the work during the pandemic has led to a higher attrition rate, and we will see uh, even higher attrition in the future. This will be um, will be an obstacle and a challenge to achieve the ne necessary accessibility to to um, the uh, the populations around the world, accessibility to healthcare, and. Unfortunately, to this we can add um, um, attacks and harassment to health and care workers during the pandemic. We have addressed this many times, but the, the, the calls to protect us against violence have unfortunately been widely ignored. And even here, documentation is important. So back to where I started, collecting data about the spread of public health threats. Is neither a luxury nor is it a national business. It is essential and it is affecting us all. We owe respect to those colleagues who succumbed during the pandemic in order to serve their patients. They are truly heroes. Their families need our support, but we owe them more. We owe them not to make the same mistakes again. So if there is a revision of the international health regulations coming up, or even better, if there is, uh, will be a pandemic treaty, collecting and reporting um, the essential figures to observe, measure and understand the public health emergency will be crucial, both to control, but also to contain it. So we will say that complete, correct and instant reporting should be part of our international collaboration. The WHO offers the right platform for this and we will, um, we would encourage all national countries, all countries in the world to, to stand up for this. Without that, beating future pandemic will be more difficult and with the risk of repeating what we have seen in the last two years. Thank you for this. Thank you. Thank you, Heidi. And also thank you to Annette and thank you to both of your organizations also for your continuing partnership to the International Council of Nurses and to World Medical Association. More than 10 months since the first vaccines were approved, the fact that millions of health workers still haven't been vaccinated is an indictment on the countries and companies that control the global supply of vaccines High and upper middle income countries have now administered almost half as many booster shots as the total number of vaccines administered in low income countries. In 10 days time, 
20 people will meet in Rome with the ability to change that, the leaders of the G20 countries. Between now and then, roughly 500 million vaccine doses will be produced. That's the amount of additional doses we need to achieve our target of vaccinating 40% of the population of every country by the end of the year. 82 countries are at risk of missing that target. For three quarters of those countries, it is simply a problem of insufficient supply. The other quarter of countries have some limitations in their ability to absorb vaccines, and we're working to address those problems. The target is reachable, but only if the countries and companies that control supply match their statements with actions right now. The barrier is not production. The barriers are politics and profit. The G20 countries have pledged to donate more than 1.2 billion doses to COVAX. So far, only 150 million have been delivered. For most donations, we have no timeline. We don't know what's coming and when. Manufacturers have not told us how much COVAX will receive or when we will receive it. We cannot have equity without transparency. Ahead of the G20 summit next week, we plan to publish new 12-month strategic plan and budget for the Act Accelerator, which will set out the actions and resources needed to achieve our targets. It's clear what needs to happen. The countries that have already reached the 40% target, which includes all the G20 countries, must give their spot in the vaccine delivery queue to COVAX and Abbott. The G20 countries must fulfill their dose-sharing commitments immediately. Manufacturers must prioritize and fulfill their contracts with COVAX and Abbott as a matter of urgency and be far more transparent about what's going where. And they must share know-how, technology, licenses, and waive intellectual property rights. We are not asking for charity. We are calling for a common-sense investment in the global recovery. COVAX has the money and contacts to buy vaccines. What we don't have is any visibility on when the manufacturers will deliver. One of the clearest and strongest voices for the need to invest in vaccine equity is Gordon Brown, the former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and WHO's Ambassador for Global Health Financing. And it's my great pleasure to welcome Gordon today. And Gordon, thank you for your continuing work and partnership and leadership. You have the floor. Thank you. I want to start by thanking Annette and Heidi for their moving and challenging statements about the loss of 115,000 health workers so tragically lost during this COVID crisis. I, I counted a privilege to work with Dr. Tedros, who's just introduced me, and with his brilliant, dedicated team. And I'm here today to issue a warning that in the ongoing race we are in between the virus and vaccines, we are once again at a moment of truth. And the next 10 days to October the 31st will be decisive. If at the G20 summit in Italy, the world's richest countries cannot mobilize an extraordinary and expedited 
airlift of doses to the unvaccinated and unprotected of the world and do so starting immediately, an epidemiological, economic and ethical dereliction of duty will shame us all. And we may have lost our last chance before winter to initiate what is urgently needed to save hundreds of thousands of lives, a globally coordinated month by month operational plan and timetable that transfers what are unused vaccines we now hold in the richest countries of the world to the world's poorest countries that are in desperate need, as Dr. Tedros has said, of vaccines now. For it's urgent we close this yawning and unconscionable gap between the promises of vaccines that our richest countries have made and the painfully slow delivery of them to the poorest. And it's time to bring to an end a tragic and unacceptable but still growing divide between global north and global south, that by December on current projections, the West will be stockpiling 600 million unused vaccines, and by February, almost a billion, that could, starting today, if airlifted to the South, help prevent the loss of lives. To have the vaccines available in one half of the world, and yet to deny them to the other half of the world, is one of the greatest international public policy failures imaginable. And it's a moral catastrophe of historic proportions that will shock future generations. For if the G20 who hold the lion's share of vaccines do not act, act to switch their stockpile vaccines and delivery contracts from north to south, the World Health Organization's latest forecast is that there will be 200 million more COVID cases in the next year, three quarters of them in the countries where most remain unvaccinated and unprotected, and five million lives hang in the balance. And if this were to be the case, we are only a little more than halfway through the damage caused by this pandemic. Now, in face of this crisis, with only 5% of adults vaccinated in Africa, just 1.4% in low-income countries, the first target of 10% vaccinated in all countries was not met by deadline day, September 30th. 56 countries did not reach 10%, 18 countries managed no more than 1% vaccinated. The failure is such that having made a promise to meet that September deadline, we're in mid-October still 200 million vaccines short. And the 40% adult vaccination target for December, confirmed only a few weeks ago at the Global Vaccine Summit, chaired to his great credit by President Biden, has, unless we act now, no chance of being met. Despite the heroic work of COVAX, the bulk purchasing agency, we still appear to be 500 million vaccines short to reach that 40% target. Now, since the start of the pandemic, the number of COVID cases has reached 242 million. And we'll say the World Health Organization almost double again to 440 million in 2022. The death toll is officially now at 4.9 million, and it could virtually double to an overall figure of nearly 10 million within the next year or more. So failing to vaccinate the world is self-defeating. It's against our self-interest. It's against all our security interests. The longer vaccine inequity persists, the more the virus will keep circulating and mutating, the greater the likelihood of the pandemic continuing uninhibited for at least another year, delaying our containment of COVID, prolonging the economic and social disruption the virus is causing. Now, Airfinity, the expert data research agency, are showing us that even if we account for boosters and vaccinating the over 12s and even younger, 240 million vaccines are lying today unused in the West. If we do not act and use them, 
the figure of vaccines either unused or about to be delivered under contract will exceed 400 million next month. By the end of December, 600 million. So the 500 million shortfall in vaccines that we've talked about can be bridged by transferring 500 million unused vaccines south by switching delivery contracts to do so. By February, the unused stock could be 1 billion. And what is more, Affinity estimate that if we do not transfer these vaccines quickly, 100 million of these vaccines could pass their use-by date and expire and would have to be destroyed and wasted. But there is a way forward. In advance of the G20 on October the 30th, Western leaders should decide on a plan and a timetable to transfer the vaccines that are available from north to south. If this was agreed, then the other G20 members who also have unused vaccines could be persuaded to add their vaccines and switch their delivery contracts. And this would enable us to reach 40% vaccination rates in all countries by December. So we are now in a countdown to the start of the G20 under Prime Minister Draghi. The G20 is our chance to agree and coordinate an operational plan and a timetable to meet our vaccine targets and to make progress where previously we've fallen short. And of course, an extraordinary humanitarian effort is also needed, as Dr. Tedros has so eloquently said, with the World Bank, IMF and other agencies making additional resources available to Act A and to the 91 hardest pressed countries to build the medical capacity they need and the staffing to administer the vaccines in urban and rural areas over the coming months. But friends, the alternative is unthinkable. A fractured world where bitterness at a two-track future grows and where the disease spreads uninhibited in unprotected places. And then as it mutates, new variants threaten to infect even the fully vaccinated. It's in everybody's interests. And there is no greater cause today than us acting decisively now to bridge the unacceptable divide between the world's vaccine rich and the world's vaccine poor. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much indeed, Gordon, for your leadership and advocacy. We can only hope the G20 countries hear your call. So thank you so much again, and I hope you will stay with us for uh, the interaction with the media. And Margaret, back to you. Thank you very much, Dr. Tedros, and to our distinguished speakers. As Dr. Tedros said, we will now open the floor to questions. Uh, we've got a lot of you online with your hands up already, so please keep your questions short. Please keep to one question. We will start with Antonio from the Spanish news agency EFE. Uh, Antonio, unmute yourself and ask your question. Uh, hello, good afternoon. Um, to start, uh, well, I want to send my condolences to the health workers all over the world that for, for all these many lives lost. Uh, my question is on another topic. It's on the election of the Director General of WHO. The nomination deadline ended a month ago, but we still don't know how many candidates there are, who they are, or whether Dr. Tedros is going to run for re-election. So can you please give us some information on this process? Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Um, I cannot go into details because of uh, many reasons, but it will be announced at the end of uh, this month. Thank you. 
Thank you, Dr. Tedros. So that was short. The next question goes to Corinne Bloomberg from, uh, from Bloomberg News Agency. Sorry. Uh, Corinne, please um, unmute yourself and ask your question. Hi. Thank you. Um, how concerned are you about the surge in cases in the UK? Do you think we are in for another winter of potential lockdowns in places that either aren't using protective measures like masks or that don't have high vaccine rates, vaccination rates? Thank you, Corinne. I think that's Dr. Mike Ryan who will answer that question. Um, I, I think, uh, first of all, uh, the, the United Kingdom has achieved uh, very high levels of vaccination uh, across the board and in all its target populations, including health workers, and congratulations uh, to, to them for that. Uh, the National Health Service has held up very well under a, a year and a half more than, uh, than a year and a half of extreme pressure. And our, our, our respect to the health workers and to the, the, the managers and others who've kept that system uh, running so well through such a difficult and demanding period. Uh, there is no question if you look across Europe, and it's all the way from Azerbaijan to, to my own country, Ireland, we've seen an uptake in the number of reported cases in a large number of countries. In fact, the trend in Europe has been upwards for three weeks, uh, and, the, and the UK is no different in that. In fact, the, the, the increase in cases week on week in the UK is much less than the week on week increase in some countries in Eastern Europe, for example. But we're seeing that general trend. Um, I think uh, what we're seeing is, in, a, in essence, communities going back to what people consider as normal. Restrictions have been progressively lifted in many countries uh, in stages over the last number of months. Most of those restrictions are now not in place anymore in, in many countries. And we're seeing that coincide with the winter period in which people are moving inside as the cold snaps appear. So in that sense, there is more social mixing, there is more movement. And when you have more social mixing and more movement in the presence of a virus that spreads with the respiratory roots, then uh, you're going to get more cases. That's, 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 that's a reality. We know that the vaccines that are being used are highly effective at preventing severe disease and hospitalization. And we can see that decoupling of the incidence data, the number of cases from the number of hospitalizations and deaths. And particularly in the UK, it's really instructive to look at, at the curve that despite the increase in number of cases over the last couple of weeks, we've seen a very flat um, and, and, and a number of cases of hospitalization, severe disease and death. So the, that, is, that is definitely holding. But the vaccines are not perfect in preventing further infection or in preventing transmission. So the reality is that in the situation where there is uh, intense social mixing in the winter period with people inside, um, we are going to see further transmission of the virus. The question is whether that transmission turns into um, severe cases, hospitalizations and deaths. Uh, and the way that the hospitalizations and deaths can be avoided is ensuring that those, particularly those people in high-risk groups, are, have the appropriate uh, vaccination. And that again is the tragedy that's been outlined here by so many speakers. The fact that countries like the United Kingdom and many countries in the European Union are able to decouple the incidence from the deaths speaks to the value of the vaccines and the job that the vaccines are actually doing. Uh, the issue is that that benefit is not available to so many millions of people in so many countries, including those health workers in countries uh, all around the world. Uh, 
So we, we will expect to see increases in, in, in cases. The question remains as to whether or not we will have the same experience as last year with health systems coming once again under pressure. And again, if you look to Eastern Europe, and I think uh, in, in, in the Russian Federation yesterday, they had the highest number of hospital uh, of deaths um, um, in a very, very long time. So this is not just a phenomenon in one place. This is a phenomenon across many countries. And the difference between having intense transmission with some cases of hospitalization and death and having large-scale hospitalization and death associated with pressure on the health system really comes down to vaccination and getting vaccines uh, into people and having people increase their demand uh, for those vaccines. That doesn't mean that we don't have to be careful. This is still a very dangerous virus and we can protect ourselves. And if you're a person in, who has high vulnerability, then even if you are doubly vaccinated or vaccinated with the appropriate number of doses in your primary course, you should still be careful. Um, you should still take care. Uh, and that doesn't in any way also, we also have influenza and respiratory syncytial virus. We are seeing unusual activity in both of those viruses as those infections kick back in. We've had a, a holiday from those viruses in a way with all the measures put in place for, for SARS-CoV-2 and COVID. Uh, we've had very low incidence of those two diseases. So again, I would advise people to make sure that if it is offered that you get the influenza vaccine as well. Uh, this winter for those in the Northern Hemisphere um, and that you protect yourself against that as well. So I, again, just to say, uh, the United Kingdom has not only been part of developing vaccines but has also delivered those vaccines very effectively to its population. The NHS has stood up well um, and I believe the Health Minister yesterday and others have put in place contingency plans for further measures should they be needed and I think all countries need to be considering what they will need to do to support their health service should the incidence of disease result in higher numbers of hospitalizations. That's just good planning um, and ensure that we get particularly, and I think this is one issue, sometimes we look at this number of the percentage of people vaccinated. That's not necessarily the most important number. It's the people you've missed in the high-risk groups. They're the ones who will get sickest. They're the ones who may die. So please let us not focus purely on the number of people vaccinated or the proportion. Let's look at the people who we need to vaccinate at an absolutely uh, highest priority and have we covered those people, uh, especially those with underlying conditions um, and, and, and older persons. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ryan. And I think Dr. Aylward wants to add something. I think we can move on, but it was just the point that uh, the Director General and Mike emphasize so often, um, we don't have to see those surges. The vaccines are an important part of it, but the vaccines are only part of the issue, that social distancing, the masking, etc. We've had uh, lots of countries try to mix the vaccination high coverage with those other measures that Mike and Director General emphasize so much, and that's what we have to remember again and again and again. It's not an inevitability to have big surges of disease. It's a function of how we behave in the face of this virus as well. Thank you, Dr. Aylward. I'm looking around the room to see if any of our experts on health systems would like to point out what this means for the healthcare workers. No. Okay. So then the next question will go to Gunila from Svenska Media. Gunila, please unmute yourself and ask your question. 
Um, thank you for taking my question. And first of all, my condolences to all health workers in the world. But my question concerns vaccines. Um, all Nordic countries have actually suspended the use of Moderna vaccine for people under 30 years of age after a new study about heart inflammation. I'd like to have your view on this. Is this a reasonable decision? What is the risk of giving the Moderna vaccine to younger people considering this new data? And can younger Nordics who already have taken one dose of Moderna now safely do a mix and match and take Pfizer? Um, I think you, you have been preparing a statement on, on, of your reviewing this data, but so far I have not seen anything. Thank you. Thank you, Gunilla. Dr. Mariangela Schimau will answer your question. Thank you, Gunilla. First of all, let me say that WHO has a global advisory group on vaccine safety that meets regularly and it's currently assessing this, the, the, the decision in Sweden and Denmark to, to stop vaccinating with the Moderna vaccine and comparing the, the, the very rare, actually let me again re-emphasize the very rare side effect uh, adverse event of myocarditis in uh, younger people, especially 18 to 24 years of age, and who have taken either the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine. So this is, uh, again, uh, these vaccines, uh, first of all, the myocarditis, as has been observed, is very uh, benign. Some, some people do have to be hospitalized, but we don't have any deaths associated with it. In the assessment we have so far from the different uh, regulatory agencies and also uh, the internal assessment at WHO that the risk benefit of having the, the, the benefits of having the vaccine still await the risks. So we, we shall be seeing a, a statement of the Global Advisory Group on Vaccine Safety in the next few days. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Shemal. Uh, the next question goes to Jeremy from RFE. Jeremy, please uh, unmute yourself and ask your question. Thank you, Margaret. Um, I would like to ask a question uh, about the nurses. Uh, I was wondering, um, regarding health workers, does WHO recommend or is working on a recommendation for health workers to receive a third dose and if Ms. Kennedy is still online, I would like to know if that's a demand from the nurses themselves. Thanks. Thank you very much. We'll go to Annette, I think, first of all, and then um, Dr. James Campbell will answer. I think if I heard you correctly, you're asking if um, healthcare workers like nurses should get a third dose. Is that what I heard? Correct. Um, of course, if we are talking about the safety of healthcare workers, we would um, agree with what the evidence suggests. Um, however, what we are saying too is we would like to see equity in distribution of vaccines across the world, not just in high-income countries receiving vaccines, two vaccines or three vaccines or booster doses. Um, that would be ICNs and ETOFs in relation to healthcare workers, it's equity of vaccines across the world to protect everybody. Um, so that's where ICN would be coming from. But of course, we would do everything in our power to protect the healthcare workers because we need them. A loss of one more life is a loss too much. Thank you very much. Uh, 
Dr. Aylward, would you like to add anything on that? Or oh, that's fine. Okay, so the next, um, the next uh, question goes to uh, Gabriela from uh, Sotomayor from Proceso, Mexico. Gabriela, please unmute yourself and ask your question. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for taking my question and my condolences to all the health workers in the world. Uh, my question is to, to Dr. Tedros. Uh, the president of Mexico, Mr. Andres Manuel López Obrador, expressed harsh criticism against the WHO because of the delay on the authorization of emergency use of certain vaccines. At his press conference, he criticized the organization for its inefficiency and asked you to accelerate the process to authorize the use of certain vaccines, for example, the Sputnik or CanSino. This is the second time that he puts pressure on the WHO to hurry with the process of vaccine authorization, and he questioned if the reason was political or ideological. So I kindly ask for your comments. Thank you. I, I was going to say, uh, go, perhaps Dr. Shamal will begin. Thank you, Gabriela. This is an important question because actually, it, it, I, let me make very clear that WHO use international standards and the, the procedures that, uh, that guide the emergency use listing are published in WHO's website and they are followed by all manufacturers. So, uh, but the procedures don't, in, in themselves, they are procedures, right? We, what needs to happen is that the manufacturer needs to apply for, a, needs to do a submission to WHO, and then it, once it's accepted, it needs to submit all data, and data, like I'm saying, WHO is not inventing new data or creating different differential uh, requirements. You, we use the internationally accepted record recognize the standards and norms for the, the quality and safety of health products. And then the, the speed when, with which the, the, the vaccines are listed, uh, which is the emergency use listing, depends on how fast the manufacturer submits all the data. And in some cases, we do need to do inspections. In, in the manufacturers. If the inspection was recent, we don't need to do it again. But so in the case specifically of the emergency use listing of, uh, of Sputnik that was mentioned, let me say that we, we did start what we call the rolling submission, which means that the, the applicant starts to, to upload in WHO's website the data, the technical data, clinical data, the clinical trials, the, the good manufacturing practices, the quality management system, there is a series of data that needs to come in. We haven't received all the, the submission from, from Sputnik yet. And let me say that the process was on hold until yesterday evening because of a, a legal procedure. We still needed the, the applicant to sign that they agreed to the WHO's uh, rules and procedures to continue to do the assessment. So it has restarted as of today. And so we expect that we will be able to, to redo the inspections in the next few weeks. And, and also we, still ex we are still going to receive additional data from, uh, from the, the Sputnik applicant. So th this is the process that works for 
everyone. You know, so there's no differentiation. WHO doesn't differentiate from where the manufacturer is, which country it is, whether it's uh, this or that, it, or state-owned or private sector. We follow the rules that are equal to everyone. There, then there are different timelines because of the, the different processes in terms of the speed with which the manufacturer can provide the data to WHO. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So uh, she wanted me also to <laughs> respond, so I'd be happy to say a few words. Uh, first of all, I, we haven't heard from Mexico straight if they have any concerns. Uh, they can ask us, they can send us uh, a message, and um, we can give them any answer. So this is uh, uh, the first time I'm getting information that they have concerns. Uh, and uh, second, if they're interested, they can send experts to see uh, how we do it here. So instead of uh, uh, president um, really raising these issues without any contact with our experts, you know, first it's better to leave it up to the experts to discuss. Um, and as I uh, offered earlier, uh, if he wants to know, I think he can uh, send experts and our experts and their experts can, uh, can uh, uh, discuss. One thing I would like to assure uh, His Excellency the President though is we use data and evidence and principles, nothing else. And the final recommendations come from experts with the right skills and, and experience. So we always use evidence and, and, and signs. So that's what I would like to assure uh, His Excellency. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Tedros and Dr. Shimal. And the next question will go to John Zarakostas. John, please unmute yourself and ask your question. Yes, good afternoon. I'd like to follow up on some of the interventions by the representative from the Nurses Association, the World Medical Association, and if they could shed some light on the tragic situation in Yemen where uh, health workers have not been paid for many months, more than a year in some cases, and they're treating life-saving cases on the ground, pediatricians, etc. I know the WHO has been trying to do something about it. It would be great to know what is being done given that 11 million children's lives is at risk there. Thank you. Thank you, John. I will also go to Dr. Heidi from the w World Medical Association, who's also got her hand up, but we'll go to um, uh, uh, Dr. Annette first. Thank you for the question, and it's not just in Yemen that this is a problem. Um, we have seen it in many countries throughout the world where there hasn't been investment in health systems, and consequently, nurses are not paid, and they're not, uh, and they're not even employed, even though there's shortage in those countries. Um, I'm not sure what we can do except to put pressure on governments to invest in their health workforce, because without a health workforce, you don't have a health economic system in country. So I understand that it's not just in Yemen that there is an issue in relation to the delivery of care to children and to um, the society at large 
we're finding in it in many, many countries throughout the world. Um, so we have to all uh, put pressure on governments to ensure that there is um, up, that there is employment and that people are paid to um, actually deliver care and that this is as important as investment in banks or investment in any other um, area of work um, because it's, it seems like healthcare is not as important as you know, having your money invested in a bank. I mean, really, which is more important, that you die or that you have money in the bank? To me, there, there's no equation there. So, uh, you know, I am just extraordinarily um, taken aback that governments see so little reality in the, the reason to invest in healthcare and to invest in healthcare workforce and to protect the general population. We saw what happened when COVID came. The whole world shut down, the economy shut down, everything shut down. But the only people that could keep going were the healthcare workforce and the hospitals and the institutions to try and protect the people uh, and to save their lives. So it's time that governments learned and it's time that governments learned a lesson from this pandemic. Thank you, Dr. Annette. And we'll now go to Dr. Heidi who had her hand up, I think for an earlier question. Um, over to you, Dr. Heidi. Thank you so much. Uh, yes, it was for an earlier question, but I'd like to address this as well, because we see it in, in many countries, and uh, we appeal to the humanity and uh, ethics of the health professionals on the floor. Uh, but uh, a country, a society can't build on that, because they, even they are leaving to save their lives. Uh, many times. And uh, I just spoke to a, a colleague in, in Lebanon, and we see colleague after colleague leaving um, uh, to other countries. And this we have seen before the pandemic, it has just been worse. And we have to see to that uh, health care is part of the infrastructure, just as the health of the population is an asset, not only money in the bank, but it's an asset, but healthcare personal uh, is uh, an asset, an important asset. Uh, so it's about politics, it's about, uh, about investments, but also about global collaboration. We have to support each other. Um, so yes, we acknowledge the problem and it is actually very big. So, but what I wanted to add to your question, the last question, but I, I wanted to add the a former uh, question about vaccines. Uh, vaccination of healthcare personnel, third dose, yes or no. And I, I just like to address uh, the opening remarks by Dr. Sadras, where he, he pointed out that two out of five healthcare personnel are not vaccinated yet, or that two out of five are vaccinated, sorry. And that's a, a too low number. And there, uh, the, the healthcare personnel, as physicians, as, as myself, we have a, a responsibility to get vaccinated as well. But because between the situation where we do have access to vaccine and the possibility to vaccinate healthcare personnel, and where there is a total lack of vaccine, there is um, a range in between. And there is also a choice about, uh, of the healthcare personnel. So it is our our responsibility as well to get vaccinated. We meet vulnerable people all the time, and there's a risk if we are not vaccinated that we carry uh, the spread of the virus uh, to patients. And we are also role models uh, towards the population. And we need to, to tell the population of the importance 
to, of being vaccinated. We also have a role in promoting the right information about vaccines because there are a lot of misinformation and um, uh, incorrect information about both the vaccine and the pandemic, but also um, yeah, about the spread of the virus. And we need to promote clinical data as fast as possible and as much as possible so that we and the populations around the globe will accept to be vaccinated as well. That's important to address. Then uh, the question of a third dose, it's, 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 <laughs> it's coming later. But these, uh, to get vaccinated in the first place must have seniority. Thank you so much. And now Mr. James Campbell will answer this excellent question. Is getting a lot of interest. Thank you, Margaret. Uh, John, thank you very much for the question. Yes, the situation in Yemen is of real concern. Uh, you will have seen in today's joint statement, uh, the Healthcare Professional Associations, WHO, many of the partners, ILO included, uh, the second call to action is on the decent work agenda to ensure that these health and care workers who are putting themselves often in situations of great difficulty, uh, who are having a higher risk of infection and a higher rate of deaths, are in positions where the basic conditions, remuneration included, are being put forward. Uh, we, in the working paper that is published today with the estimates of the deaths, we also present all the other measurements that the data scientists, the epidemiologists here in the organization with member states are conducting. And that includes looking at the negative impact on the work environment. We have seen labor protests in over 80 jurisdictions, uh, many examples of which are due to the work environment, the personal protective equipment, the uh, acceptable levels of risk. It's also to do with the burden of mental illness, the stress, the anxiety that um, we heard Annette Kennedy, president of the ICN, talk about. So pay terms and conditions is part of the action, and we're working with our colleagues in Yemen, with the government, to try and find solutions. And as Bruce Aylward and many colleagues are talking about, if we look at the 40% targets, the 70% targets for population coverage, that is going to translate into several million healthcare workers working full-time on vaccination. If we are not paying them, we will not have vaccine equity. And just one comment, if I may, on the either-or question of the third dose. As Gordon Brown gave the presentation earlier, it is not a question of either-or. We can do both. There is enough vaccine supply if we have the political decision-making, all health workers protected, and that includes first, second, and where necessary, third doses. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Campbell. And, and Dr. Susanna Jakob will add some more comments. Thank you very much. I would like to share the concerns of Annette and Heidi on the need to move towards more resilient health systems. And that will be a very important part of the recovery and the transformation. And that will definitely also include issues around the workforce. 
And we have been very pleased to release the WHO position paper just two days ago in this room uh, on this topic together with Mike. It was a joint work learning from the COVID experience. And many of the ministers joined us in that meeting and also the regional directors. And they welcomed the timeliness, the relevance, the utility of this integrated approach to move, to move towards UHC and health security together. And there are many actionable recommendations in that paper. One of them is that we have to invest more into the foundation of the health system, which is primary health care, essential public health functions, IHR implementation, integrated approaches, and as there is interdependency between these issues, it is very important to use the primary health care approach as a nexus. We also agreed that we need to invest more into FCV settings, FCV settings which is the fragile and conflict-ridden countries, and they have to be our priorities, and we have to start intensified or support intensified programs in these countries. One additional element is that if we want to address all these issues around the workforce and other things, we have to invest more into the health systems. And the COVID has brought it, has made it very clear that health is an investment and not a cost. And all these issues around the workforce are definitely linked to that. So we have already started the discussion how we turn this into an implementation plan in the countries uh, at the three levels of the organization working with the country and regional offices. And in the meantime, also, uh, we implement the guidelines that have been developed by James and his team during the COVID when we addressed many of the workforce issues and actually adapted lots of the WHO guidelines uh, to the COVID and COVID-related issues. Issues. And it's not only a guideline that sits here in Geneva, it's a guideline that we shared with the countries, county offices, and are actively implementing it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Jakob, for explaining exactly what countries really can do to make the health systems resilient. Uh, we've run out of time. The questions were so excellent and the responses so rich. So I'm now going to hand over to Dr. Tedros for his final remarks. Over to you, Dr. Tedros. Pardon? Oh, and over to our speakers to ask if they would like to have any final remarks. Do we have final remarks from our speakers? Yes, sir. Yeah, just, just very quickly, I suppose. Um, what I would like to see is standardized data collection uh, across all countries and fed to WHO. I would like to see implementation of safety and protective measures. And just as an outside, uh, most of the PPEs, all of the PPEs, were designed for men, not for women. Yet 90% of, of nurses are women. 70% of all healthcare workers are women. Interesting that they were designed not safely for women. Um, that there would be mental and physical, physical support. That there would be vaccination for all healthcare workers by the end of the year. And that there would be incentives to retain staff, particularly older staff, nurses in the workforce, and there's lots of recommendations on how to do that both by ICN and by WHO, and to build capacity in home countries, not to be um, aggressively pushing from other countries. And finally, um, I hope that government have a lesson, learned a lesson for the future. I'm not convinced yet. Thank you. May I take the floor? Please do. Oh. 
Thank you. Um, excellent. Um, and I can, I can just uh, say that I support what Annette said. Um, I'd, I'd like to add the importance of global collaboration and that the window we, of opportunity we have to make substantial change to strengthen the global uh, collaboration should not be overestimated. We might not have that much time, so we need to act now to get um, the uh, greater support to our uh, initiatives such as the um, um, that, that Gavi um, has and the WHO. So we must all um, help each other to urge all countries in the world to support the global institutions who have the mandate to, to make global collaborations and, and guidelines because we need action made, and substantial action. And I'd like to thank for the acknowledgement by the WHO uh, to all health and care workers around the world um, supporting us, of course, because many healthcare workers are alone in the front line and it's difficult as healthcare workers to speak for themselves. Many times they're standing there with very sick patients. So it's, it's so important that we acknowledge their, their role and their vulnerability. And if healthcare is vulnerable in a country, well, then the population and, and the health will be vulnerable, and then society will be vulnerable. And to, to become more resilient, we need continuing investments in the health of the population, and healthcare workers are our core for that. So uh, finally, thank you that you highlight the importance of the healthcare workers around the world. Thank you so much for those comments. Uh, unfortunately, Mr. Gordon Brown has had to go to another meeting, so I'll hand over to Dr. Tedros to, for his final remarks and to close the press conference. Okay, thank you, Margarita, and thank you to our guests today, to former Prime Minister Gordon Brown, to Dr. Annette Kennedy, and Dr. Heidi Stenschmeier. I would also like to thank our media colleagues for joining today and see you in our upcoming pressers. Thank you. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the World Health Organization briefing from just three days ago in uh, Geneva, Switzerland, uh, featuring the Director General, Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, uh, along with other experts uh, from nursing, uh, International Nursing Council, as well as uh, experts uh, from both the World Health Organization as well as other uh, institutions discussing the current status of uh, COVID-19, uh, the challenges and problems with uh, vaccine uh, distribution uh, in developing countries, among other issues. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, uh, October 24th, uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, if you'd like to have access to this program, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com uh, forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break, and we'll be back with our concluding segment.
Welcome back, and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast, and uh, that was the voice of Jerry Butler, 
along uh, with uh, Brenda Lee Eager uh, with the tune entitled Ain't Understanding Mellow. And uh, right now we want to move into the Africa Live uh, segment uh, from uh, CGTN. And, of course, uh, this uh, examines many of the pressing and burning issues uh, in Africa and, indeed, throughout the international community. Uh, Let's listen in. This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. Hello and welcome to CGTN. This is The World Today. I'm Beatrice Marshall in Nairobi. Here are your top stories. A magnitude 6.5 earthquake strikes Yilan County in Taiwan. A major fallout expected after Turkey declares ambassadors of its Western allies unwanted in the country. And we tell you why Afghans wishing to travel out of the country now have an easier time. And we begin in Taiwan where the China Earthquake Network Center has reported a magnitude 6.5 earthquake in Yilan County in Taiwan. It had a depth of 66.8 kilometers and could be felt across the north, east and west of the island with the epicenter in Yilan County. Authorities say nuclear plants were affected by the quake and electricity, water and gas supplies are operating normally. Andy Lee spoke to us earlier from Taipei. This earthquake on the island of Taiwan happened at 11 minutes past 1 p.m. It measured 6.3 on the Richter scale. And shortly after that, in less than two minutes, an aftershock, almost the same scale, however a little bit less, was also felt. Now, the people on the island of Taiwan are still very scared and I may say still in shock after this earthquake. Shopkeepers are cleaning up the shop because many items from shelves fell down. Now, as far as transportations are concerned, the mass rapid transit in Taipei City is at a standstill for checking, for safety concerns. Also, the high-speed rail of Taiwan on the island of Taiwan is also at a standstill right now for checking, for safety concerns. And if resumed afterwards, the length between the trains will be much longer, also for safety concerns. Now, as far as people are concerned, um, many of the people during the earthquake, including me, were very scared. It was shaking up and down, left and right, and immediately we turned off our gas because we're afraid the gas pipeline might bump, rupture, and we are afraid to take the elevator. So people are still very scared right now. And let's turn to Turkey, where a looming political crisis is brewing after President Erdogan said nearly a dozen ambassadors of its Western allies were unwelcome in the country. This comes after a joint statement by foreign embassies calling for the release of activist Osman Kavala. Mikhail Badavid has more details from Istanbul. Erdogan's request to expel 10 ambassadors comes following a joint statement that these embassies released on Monday. In that statement, the diplomats had asked Turkey to release the philanthropist and businessman Osman Kavala. Now, Osman Kavala has been in jail for four years. Uh, He was first jailed on charges of financing the nationwide protests that took place in 2013, known as the Gezi protests. Uh, He was acquitted of these charges last year, but then that ruling 
ruling was overturned this year and combined with new charges, this time in accusations with relations to the 2016 uh, coup attempt uh, accused of trying to overthrow the government. Now, the ambassadors had called for a just and speedy resolution to the Osman Kavala case. The European Court of Human Rights has called for Kavala's immediate release in late 2019, claiming that his arrest was based on political motives and lacking of evidence. However, some critics also believe that Erdogan's statement is actually aimed at a domestic audience as it comes a year and a half before elections. Well, currently, it's really not clear what the foreign ministry will do, whether it will implement Erdogan's order, basically. Uh, a cabinet meeting is expected to take place tomorrow, so we might receive a decision following that meeting. If it is implemented, that Turkey would basically be triggering a major political crisis with its Western allies, with 10 of them, and six of these are EU members. Uh, Turkey could also face the same procedures from these countries based on the principle of reciprocity. Um, on Saturday, the European Parliament president tweeted, and I quote, the expulsion of 10 ambassadors is a sign of authoritarian drift of the Turkish government. We will not be intimidated. Freedom for Osman Kavala. So that's one stance from Europe at least. The Council of Europe had also earlier stated it will begin infringement proceedings against Turkey if Kavala is not released. Uh, the next hearing of Osman Kavala is going to take place on November 26. Meanwhile, Turkey's economy may also take another hit due to this potential political crisis. It's already suffering at the moment, but we may see a, the Turkish lira taking another hit on Monday. Well, let's get more on this now. I'm joined by Sami Hamdi. He's the Managing Director of the International Interest, a global risk and intelligence company. He's joining us via Skype. Uh, Sami, thank you for joining us on the program. What do you make of this diplomatic dispute between Turkey and ambassadors of its Western allies? I think it's the latest chapter of tensions between Turkey and the EU. It's important to remember that this is the latest chapter in 10, in 10 years of cascading relations between Turkey and the EU. Erdogan specifically believes that his concerns and grievances in the region are not being taken seriously by the EU, that the EU has not been cooperative, while the EU accuses Turkey and Erdogan of sliding back into regression on human rights uh, and the like. So what we're seeing here is that as Erdogan approaches elections, as it looks like his chances are not as good as they were before, we're seeing uh, this increasing tension in that there is a sense in Ankara that the EU wants to see Erdogan lose. You'll remember that Biden, uh, the U.S. president, it, during his election campaign, said quite bluntly to New York Times journalists that we have to work with the opposition to defeat Erdogan, he said. So the animosity was clear from early days. And that's why we're seeing this lashing out uh, from Erdogan over this statement that was made demanding the release of Osman Kavala. But it's also important to note that yesterday the Norwegian embassy released a statement saying that it had not been asked by the foreign minister to leave or to evacuate or to essentially have its ambassador dispelled. And this is what leads many people to suggest that perhaps Erdogan is bluffing and that rather he's trying to make a strong statement to say to the EU back off, to win internal support, to suggest that he's continuing to fight external threats and indeed to try to force the EU to listen to him better, given that in the past 10 years he's come to realize that the EU only listens when he threatens and when he uses force and not when he tries to engage in dialogue. All right. So what should we expect, though, to happen next, if that is indeed the case, and if Turkey goes ahead and expels the diplomats from Western countries? I don't think Erdogan wants to dispel uh, the diplomats. I think they are trying to apply pressure on the EU on numerous issues. There are a number of issues that have uh, essentially grinded to a halt as the EU waits to see what happens 
in the elections. I don't think there will necessarily be an escalation. It's true that we saw the chairman of the Munich Security Forum and former German ambassador yesterday state that the EU should also threaten to kick out Turkish embassies. However, it's also important to note that Merkel has always been uh, the one who holds the stick from the middle, always been the one that facilitates dialogue. There is an appreciation that Turkey is under significant pressure both economically and politically. There is an awareness amongst the more level-headed European policymakers that the cooperation with Turkey is needed. And therefore, what I envisage is that this will escalate diplomatically in, or in terms of rhetoric, but not necessarily uh, in terms of cutting diplomatic ties. I don't think Turkey can afford that. I don't think the EU can afford that. And I think what is happening today is behind the scenes negotiations and discussions to try to defuse tensions and try to restore some sense of normalcy. But the reality is that the dynamics will stay the same. And the EU and the US are privately hoping that Erdogan loses the next election. Erdogan knows this, and I do think this is not the last time that we'll see escalation between the two in the near and in the short-term future. All right, Sami Hadi joining us there via Skype. Thank you. The US envoy for the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, Sung Kim, just held in-depth talks with a Seoul's Peninsula Peace and Security Representative, No Kyu-duk. Jeff Button has more. The talks wrapped up around 10 a.m. this morning between the two nuclear envoys, Song Kim for the United States and No Ki-dok for South Korea, uh, both giving statements after that meeting and saying there had been productive discussions, that talks would be ongoing, but the two key areas where it seems the most progress had been was on the formal end of war declaration. So what multiple parties involved in that conflict, so theoretically it would also have to have uh, China on board as well as the DPRK, the US and South Korea. He said they also discussed humanitarian assistance uh, that could reach ordinary citizens of the DPRK and uh, they were also exploring other options to restart the long-stalled nuclear diplomacy on the Korean Peninsula. However, uh, the U.S. envoy Sung Kim also had some tough words talking about the recent missile tests from the DPRK, uh, describing them as in breach of multiple U.N. sanctions. He also said they were concerning, counterproductive and provocative. The kind of language that South Korea has been trying to avoid to sort of foster the restart of diplomacy. Uh, nonetheless, Sung Kim saying he hoped that Pyongyang would respond positively uh, to the U.S. efforts to restart diplomatic talks aimed at uh, a sort of a breakthrough that might ultimately lead to lasting peace. The new Afghan government resumed issuing passports early this month. The process was suspended after the Taliban took over, making it almost impossible for many Afghans to leave the country. Abdul Hadi Deres has more from Kabul. Like all other government agencies, Afghanistan's passport directorate shut down when the Taliban regained control. But with the formation of a new government, services resumed on October 5. Now operations are running smoothly. The new passports are physically identical with the ones issued during the previous government and are issued under the name of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. Foreign nationals can also apply for visas to enter the country. The process has been very organized. There are no crowds anymore. These passports say Islamic Republic of Afghanistan on the cover. Several people have traveled abroad with the passports we issued. They didn't have any problem. 
The passport office was notorious for red tape and briberies in the past. This made it difficult for people with no money to get passports. Today, passport issuance is much faster. Current applicants are happy with the changes. During the previous regime, agents used to stand in front of the office, asking for money to process your passport. Today, I didn't see any such thing, and I hope I will get my passport easily. Yes, I got our passports within three days. One passport is for a patient needing treatment abroad, and the other for the caregiver. I'm very happy with the behavior of the personnel. Most of the employees from the previous administration are now back in their posts, and more passports are being issued. There are female employees in charge of processing applications for female applicants. Today we issued 4,700 passports. I have decided to increase the number to 5,000 to 6,000 passports a day. None of the equipment and machinery, including the biometric machine, computers, and the data system, were damaged during the regime change. The director general says the resumption of the passport service is now generating a steady flow of much-needed revenue for the government. Over 180,000 online applications have been received, and 24,000 passports will be soon issued. Passports of those who applied during the previous government will be processed, so they don't need to apply again. Taliban say they will issue passport to everyone who applies, but some groups, including those seeking medical treatment abroad and people wanting to study abroad, will be prioritized. Abdul Hadi Daris, CGTN, Kabul. And that's it for this edition of The World Today. I'll be back shortly with more news from the continent in Africa Live. Thank you for watching. GTN, China Global Television Network.
Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni says blast in the outskirts of the capital Kampala was a terrorist attack. The challenges and achievements as the anniversary of the UN Charter's ratification in 1945 is marked. And scientists in South Africa seek to reverse engineer a COVID-19 vaccine to boost access to poor countries. Welcome to Africa Live on CGTN with me, Beatrice Marshall, in Nairobi. Also ahead on the program, we celebrate Africa fashion in a premier event in Ethiopia. And Kenyan distance runner T-Rop laid to rest as yet another top athlete killed this time in Ecuador. Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni says the bomb blast that took place in the outskirts of the capital Kampala was a terrorist attack. Ugandan police have confirmed one person died and five people were injured in that bomb blast on Saturday night. The blast happened at a pub in Kwata Zone, Kamamboga, in the outskirts of the capital Kampala. Isabel Nakiria reports. Ugandan police say three people allegedly abandoned a polythene bag at a fully packed pub which later exploded. So far police says one person died but five others were seriously injured and are receiving treatment in hospitals around Kampala. We took cover after the blast. Some people suspected it was a cut tire blast, but I was sure it was a bomb because I saw fragments. When I was trying to enter my car and take off, the injured people were put in my car, but one person died. President Museveni has tweeted saying it was a terrorist attack and he's ready to defend the country. The president also warned that he would defeat criminals and called for calm. The police has cordoned off the blast scene and are investigating the possible intention of the attack. No group has come out yet to claim responsibility for the attack. The last major terrorist attack in Kampala took place over a decade ago, killing over 50 people. The terror group Al-Shabaab claimed responsibility. In Uganda, pubs and nightclubs are still closed due to COVID-19 restrictions, but some bars still operate illegally. Curfew hours are in force, but many businesses operate beyond 7 p.m. local time. The blast comes days after the UK put an alert warning of a possible bomb explosion in Kampala's busy malls. Isabel Nakiria, CGTN Kampala, Uganda. Authorities in Nigeria are stepping up efforts to recapture prisoners who are aided to escape after an attack by gunmen. The gunmen attacked a jail in Nigeria's Oyo state late on Friday. Prison officials say the attackers gained entry to the prison yard by blasting the walls with dynamite. After an exchange of gunfire with prison officers, they freed over 800 inmates by force. At least 260 of those prisoners have been recaptured, but 575 are still missing. Joining me now to unpack this from the car is Wote Ojewale. He's a regional organized crime observatory coordinator for Central Africa at the Institute for Security Studies. Thank you for joining us on Africa Live. What is making prison facilities in Nigeria so prone to attacks? Thank you so much for having me. The jailbreaks in Nigeria cannot be divorced from the existential crisis of insecurity in the country. And that informs the reason why it appears it has become a recurring decimal 
So, um, one, you realize that, um, um, one, you have to consider the sophistication of the criminals that are carrying out these activities. You just mentioned how, and it's also available in the report, that uh, they came with sophisticated military equipment. So it becomes very difficult for the little security that you have around the prison to be able to repel such uh, attack. And the second thing is the overcrowded nature of the Nigerian prison. As I speak to you, about 70,000 inmates are in Nigerian prison. And it will be interesting to know that it is only 27% of, of this figure that has actually been convicted. So you have a situation whereby the security is stretched lane already and you now have to police or secure a prison facility that is already overcrowded. So that is a major challenge. It will have been better if the prisons are less crowded. And the third point is the general failure of intelligence. Because uh, before such level of uh, attack is going to be carried out, it will be expected that the intelligence community should be able to pick that and act proactively. So 575 of the inmates are still missing. What is going to be done to... Uh, recapture the escapees and make jails in Nigeria more secure? Well, I think the number one thing is the fact that um, it's important that you, I mean, that we take serious in Nigeria the issue of identity, um, which uh, Nigeria has not really taken serious in the recent time, because these people have already mingled with the population and it becomes difficult to track them. So I think what is important is that the intelligence community, the police and other law enforcement institutions now need to um, increase their surveillance and actually be seen to be doing the work so that it doesn't go on the carpet like the previous jail, uh, jailbreak that we have had in Nigeria. Two weeks, one week after, you don't hear anything about such incidents. I mean, I mean, the tracking of those images again. So I think it's important that the security institutions and law enforcement are seen to be diligent in doing this. And I think the second option that is also very important is that the overall the conjunction of the military, of the prison facility needs to be seen to be taken beyond rhetoric. And the Ministry of Interior and the relevant government agencies are seen to be doing the needful, so that the prison inmates can, I mean, can, the number can be reduced. And then, in terms of securing those facilities, they can actually concentrate on what really matters, rather than um, lumping everybody together, whereby you have about 70% of the people who are actually awaiting trials. That is also very, very important. And generally, improving on the security atmosphere within the country is going to help in this regard. Wale Ojewale joining us there from Dakar. Thank you. Well, let's now turn to Mali, where a UN delegation is currently on the ground. The 15-member delegation is set to pressure the transitional government to abide to, by a February 27th deadline to hold a presidential election. ECOWAS set this deadline, but Malian authorities have openly suggested it might be missed. Colonel Asimi Goita, who led the August coup, is the current interim president. The delegation will also discuss allegations that government security forces carried out summary executions as well as other human rights abuses. France's ambassador to the UN is part of the delegation. In addition to government officials, the UN delegation will also talk to the civil society stakeholders. How can we help the United Nations to help Mali? How can we make sure that MINUSMA can be strengthened and work? This is the challenge. We come up with an attitude of openness and listening, and we hope to have an in-depth dialogue with the Malian authorities and with civil societies on Saturday evening and tomorrow. We welcome this mission with open arms. We found this an opportunity to present the reality of the situation in Mali and also to present the progress 
that is being made by the transitional government, but also to present our vision of what must be done to complete this transition through the organization of transparent and credible elections. Sunday marks the 76th United Nations Day, the anniversary of the UN Charter's ratification in 1945. The anniversary is celebrated on October 24th every year. A concert has been held at the UN headquarters in New York with pre-recorded performances. The UN Charter was initially signed at the San Francisco Conference on June the 26th, 1945. This year also marks 50 years since China regained its seat in the United Nations. Here's a look at how it got there. China is a founding member and one of the five permanent members of the UN Security Council. But after the People's Republic of China was founded in 1949, it was kept out of the organization for more than two decades. In 1949, Beijing stated that the government of the People's Republic of China was the sole legal one of the country, calling for the expulsion of Taiwan regime from the UN. However, the demand was met with opposition, mainly from the United States. Influenced by Washington, the UN Assembly repeatedly voted down related resolutions. But the U.S. influence was greatly cut down by China's efforts and the support from more and more newly independent countries in Asia and Africa. After the Asian-African Conference in 1955, ties between China and Africa were greatly strengthened. By 1965, 19 African countries had established official relations with China. Africa's vote was vital for China's return to the United Nations. In 1961, the 16th UN General Assembly decided to put China's representation on its agenda. It was a breakthrough for China's efforts, but the US didn't give up its plan to keep China out. Washington proposed the issue as an important question that could only be decided by a two-thirds majority vote of the General Assembly. For nearly a decade more, China struggled to restore its seat in the United Nations. In 1970, for the first time, the number of yes votes exceeded the no. Finally, on October 25, 1971, the 26th UN General Assembly rejected the United States' important question resolution and passed the Resolution 2758, which restored all the lawful rights of the People's Republic of China in the United Nations and immediately expelled the Taiwan regime. Voting is as follows, in favor 76, opposed 35, Abstention 17. The draft resolution adopted. The government of People's Republic of China will be notified accordingly. The resolution recognized the People's Republic of China as the only legitimate representative of China at the United Nations. The major breakthrough in diplomacy brought the country into a new era of multilateral relations. In the 1970s, China joined many UN-affiliated organizations such as UNESCO and ECOSOC. Since then, China has found its feet on the international arena with an entirely new look, as well as the determination to be more connected with the world. Yang, CGTN. Now, over the past three decades, China has contributed more than 40,000 peacekeepers to over 25 UN peacekeeping missions in Africa. Chinese peacekeepers have made a positive contribution to peace and development. CGTN's Robert Nagila takes a look at Chinese peacekeepers currently serving on the continent. 
In 2020, China released its first ever white paper looking back at 30 years of involvement in United Nations peacekeeping operations. In it, China commits to the basic principles of UN peacekeeping, impartiality and fulfilling the mandate of the UN Security Council. By the end of August this year, China had a total of 2,249 peacekeepers serving in nine UN peacekeeping missions across the world. In Africa, there are 1,820 Chinese peacekeepers under six UN peacekeeping missions. The largest Chinese contingent on the continent is in South Sudan under the United Nations mission in South Sudan, or UNMIS, with 1,064 Chinese peacekeepers. In Mali, China has deployed 426 Chinese peacekeepers under the United Nations multidimensional integrated stabilization mission known as MINUSMA and a further 232 Chinese peacekeepers serve under the United Nations organization stabilization mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo known as MONUSCO while in the disputed region of Abyei between Sudan and South Sudan there are 86 Chinese peacekeepers under UNISFA or the United Nations Interim Security Force for Abyei. Eleven Chinese experts serve under MINURSO, the United Nations Mission for Referendum in Western Sahara, and one police officer in Sudan under UNITERMS, the United Nations Integrated Assurance Mission in Sudan. You're watching Africa Live is still ahead on the program. Scientists in South Africa seek to reverse engineer a COVID-19 vaccine to boost access to poor countries. And we celebrate African fashion in a premier event in Ethiopia. How will your world change today? What happens here? What happens there? Or what you make happen for yourself? If it matters to you, it matters to us too. Your stories are these stories that need to be told. Africa Live. Find your voice. South Africa, young scientists are reverse engineering a coronavirus vaccine. The scientists hope their end product will reach the world's poorest people. Only 0.7% of COVID-19 vaccines have gone to low-income countries so far, while nearly half have gone to wealthy countries. Nokutula Shabalala has more. These warehouses in Cape Town have been converted into a maze of airlocked, sterile rooms. 
Young scientists are assembling and calibrating the equipment needed to reverse engineer a coronavirus vaccine. Their mission is to narrow vaccine inequality globally. Africa is maybe not as developed as a lot of the other countries who can afford to transport uh, millions of vaccine vials at negative 20 or negative 70 degrees. That is not something that is feasible for a lot of countries in Africa. So we have to make sure that we innovate so that we can get this vaccine to as many of the African citizens as we can. The scientists are working to replicate Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine, and they are doing it with the backing of the World Health Organization. The WHO is coordinating vaccine research, training and production in South Africa. We've chosen the Moderna as the gold standard because it comes out of preclinical data um, where the various vaccines were compared head to head. And that data is showing that Moderna is actually more favorable at this stage. Also, the Moderna vaccine, um, its cold storage is less difficult at minus 20 degrees. So those, those are two of the reasons why we decided to do that. Many countries, including the U.S., have pledged to provide vaccines to poorer nations. What I'm saying right now to the White House is we need to be practical. You've pledged 1.1 billion doses to the rest of the world, and that's good, but roughly 10 to 20 percent of that has only been delivered so far. But we need to actually do much more than 1 billion doses, and we need Moderna to participate in that effort. And so, uh, you know, we've got to hustle uh, because if we don't, we're going to end up with another catastrophe on our hands. We can't go to lockdowns anymore. People are sick and tired of that. We've got to keep the schools open. We've got to keep the economy open. And that means we've got to get people vaccinated around the world. Some experts see reverse engineering, which is recreating vaccines from fragments of publicly available information as one of the last ways to readdress the power imbalances of the coronavirus pandemic, which will give many people a fighting chance against COVID-19. Noktula Shabalala, CGTN. Millions of people across Kenya are suffering due to drought caused by two back-to-back seasons of rainfall, or poor rainfall, resulting in severe food shortages. This has resulted in malnutrition in many communities, especially among lactating mothers and children. CGTN's Nick Mudimba reports from Kenya's Garissa County. Ziwani village in Kenya's Garissa County. A typical day in the settlement starts, but it's business unusual for many. Adija Ibrahim, a mother of six, is getting ready to prepare a meal for her family. The children are not sure whether they'll get all the meals of the day. On this day, they'll only have one meal. As Adija prepares the meal, the elderly are tasked with collecting firewood. We go to casual jobs, but at times, two days passes without any work. The kids feed inconsistently. Mostly, it's one meal a day or sometimes nothing. Some days they go even without water. Diarrhea is now another problem, and malaria is also there. Most of the women here are involved in small businesses of selling vegetables. They are however forced to use up their stock to feed their families. The drought has hit the local community hard and malnutrition is prevalent. The COVID-19 pandemic 
has worsened the situation. As mothers, we are the most affected. We don't have food. At times, when the kid is sick, the only thing the doctor says is feed the child. That's the only treatment. Such faces of despair some at all. There is no guarantee of what's next and no idea when this drought will come to an end. The COVID-19 pandemic may add between 83 and 132 million people to the total number of undernourished in the world in 2020, depending, of course, on the decrease of growth of GDP and scenarios that we use. What this means is that the situation and the, any progress that was made, for example, in poverty reduction in the last 10 years, have been reduced. And moreover, in the case of undernourishment, which has been increasing in the last years, the situation will get worse in a significant amount more of hungry people, which means that it will be even more difficult to be able to achieve SDG2. According to the World Food Program, as of June 2021, 26.2% of children under five years suffered from chronic malnutrition in Kenya. During the same period, 4.2% of children were affected by acute malnutrition. 465,000 children and 96,000 pregnant and lactating women are acutely malnourished. The number of undernourished people in sub-Saharan Africa has been rising steadily, that's according to the World Health Organization. And the situation here in northern Kenya isn't making things better. The drought is biting. Many of them are living hand-to-mouth, not knowing what tomorrow holds. Nick Mudimba, CGTN, Garissa County, Kenya. A Ugandan artist is finding success using somewhat unusual materials. Michael Sozi turns beads into beautiful pieces of art, and as CGTN's Hilary Ayesiga tells us, it's also helping homeowners to give their living rooms a new look. Michael Sozi creates a mosaic art pattern. With much care, he sticks the beads on the board. His art pieces depict nature and African culture. If you look at the drums, uh, we try to portray that culture of the Baganda. And so basically we try to promote us and us as a, a country and our cultures. The beads come in lots of different colors, which allows the artist to be extremely creative, but it's not the easiest material to work with. So he says it takes about two weeks to complete an art piece like this one, and because of the much time invested in his work, he's able to get good returns. An art piece here costs between 600 US dollars to 1,500 US dollars. Art lovers say the art pieces are unique. I feel the originality in his work, the way he plays with the beads onto the board, it's so original and I love the patience he gives. Like You feel the time in his work and how he plays with the color, the colorful beads to come up with different uh, artworks, stories, yeah, it's really powerful. So these customers include homeowners, hotels and tourists. But like any other business, so this source of income was also hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. Now you see the situation we are in of coronavirus. Uh, so there are no more, there are no very many customers. Yeah, so we also find that challenge of uh, market. And to keep in business during the pandemic, Sozi is adding a new material on top of beads, glasswork. With these two art forms, 
Sozi hopes to bring more beauty into people's living rooms, but also cash in from his talent. Hilara Yesiga, CGTN, Kampala, Uganda. You're watching Africa Live, still ahead on the program. Zimbabwe saves $300 million in its import bill following a bumper harvest. Restoration of China's seat in the United Nations was an epic diplomatic battle. A journey fraught with obstacles. Yes! Africa's support was crucial. Victory saw a new era in China-Africa ties. Founded on a common future and shared prosperity. Now, after a series of successive droughts that affected food security in the past few years, Zimbabwe's fortunes are turning around. The country has recorded a good harvest in the 2020-2021 season. This has helped slash Zimbabwe's import bill by $300 million as many millers are now able to meet local demand. Nokutula Shabalala has more. Zimbabwe's maize reserves are advancing towards a projected 2.8 million tons following a good harvest. Millers of maize and other grains who once felt the pinch of failing to meet local demand due to droughts are now getting back on their feet. We can plan beyond 12 months. Previously, we, will get, we used to have one, one to two months cover. And that has been very difficult uh, in terms of planning, in terms of committing to customers and ensuring that uh, the market is well provided for. But also equally, uh, in terms of labor, we were unable to guarantee tenure or employment beyond the cover that we had. More grain deliveries are being recorded across the country compared to previous farming seasons. But Zimbabwe's Grain Marketing Board says farmers need to be financially and technically supported to contribute to the nation food basket. Next year we are expecting, all things being equal, 3.6 million metric tons of maize according to our projection. And, and also to ensure that you know, we, we get funding on time and pay our farmers on time makes it farmers happy and they deliver to GMB give them a good price, farmers are ready to grow and improve on production. The millers have felt the impact of climate change and with the help from government, they need to adopt climate-smart agriculture for a greater grain yield. We are not spared as Zimbabwe uh, by this scourge of climate change effects and, uh, and variability. So we need to adapt lest we die, hence uh, our thrust and ploy to climate-proof agriculture through irrigation rehabilitation development. To support the commercial grain farmers, government has targeted 1.5 million households this year. They are expected to plant 280,000 hectares of maize under a conservation agriculture scheme. Noctula Shabalala, CGTN. And still in Zimbabwe, players in the real estate sector. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, CGTN's Africa Live, uh, discussing a myriad of issues impacting the African 
our world and the international uh, community in general. The report on Zimbabwe agriculture uh, was quite interesting. And uh, that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire and the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide uh, radio broadcast for today, uh, which is Sunday, October 24th, uh, 2021. We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And if you'd like to have access to this program, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Programs can be shared with other potential listeners via email, blogs and websites, as well as social media networks. And if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.com. Dot blogspot, uh, dot com. We'll be closing out uh, with the sound of the legendary jazz saxophonist Jackie McQueen from his 1966 album entitled Dr. Jackal. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. <laughs> ¶¶